Okay. This morning is Sunday, July 11th, the year 2004, and uh, we are life-changing ministries and excited to be here. The message titled this morning is The People, the Place, and the Plan. It was really supposed to be the man, the land, and the plan, but I like the peas for some reason this morning. And I had several more and decided that I just didn't need to rhyme all that much, you know. I'd like you to take me somewhat seriously this morning, not just laugh. So, uh, why don't you turn to the book of Habakkuk? I'm so glad Wayne Christie are here this morning. I think it's amazing. Have you ever been low in your life, just down, and you spend a few seconds seeking Jesus, and He comes through for you, and He totally reverses all your circumstances? People, and this this ties back into that message on the mezuzah, people that carry God's Word within them do the same thing. It's just like worshiping and feeling God's presence break through. Sometimes you see somebody, and immediately in your mind you're taken to a good place in your life where the Lord felt present just by seeing them because it's a reminder of it, and they carry God's presence, and they're like that to me. So I'd love to have them around. Hallelujah. should have turned there before I told y'all to. Those in the Thompson chain, it is page 1042. Yeah. I have found this pattern in the Word. I, I told people that I was going to teach on Elijah's chair. And, you know, I asked around. I hate to teach on something if everybody already knows it. And, you know, I'm always excited when I find something that I think not everybody is real in tune with, you know, because it's hard to reinvent the wheel with you guys. You know the word pretty well. And uh, so I was all prepared to teach on Elijah's chair this morning. I went and I studied about it. And it's, you know, preachers like to get some special little nugget that only they get, you know, and then go deliver it because you feel like you did something. And some get all prideful in it and they feel real puffed up and all those things. To me, it's just like... Uh, Oh, I don't know, showing a kid a picture or a puzzle or or something for the first time and seeing their eyes light up. But as I began to study Elijah's chair and all and got off into circumcision and chasing rabbits everywhere, I got a whole different message. So we'll save Elijah's chair. Circumcision, just to tell you about Elijah's chair real quick, though, what happens is in a Jewish synagogue when they perform the bris or they call it bris malah, the, uh, the rite of circumcision, there is a chair that they reserve as open for Elijah. The reason that they reserve that chair as open for Elijah is Elijah must be the forerunner of the Christ. Malachi says it. So they're leaving a chair open for Elijah to sit in in case this baby that they're circumcising is the Messiah. But as I began to look at that, and you'll see how I took a tangent, circumcision is something that is special. And the reason that it's special is because when a child was circumcised as a Jew, now other countries, cultures around the world also circumcise, not that many, but some do, and it means different things. But as a Jew, on the eighth day, an eight symbolizes new beginning, incidentally the first time in a child's life that there are the clotting agents in their blood, you know, it's on the eighth day. They circumcise a baby, and here's what it does. It identifies this person as one of God's chosen, 
to be in covenant with a particular place on the planet and to be a part of a particular plan. That's where our message comes from. The people, the place, and the plan. Circumcision is a covenant that they entered into unifying a people group with a particular place on the earth for a particular plan. And as I began to study the man, the land, and the plan, or however we want to say this, the people, the place, and the plan, I began to see a pattern in the Word that God does this. He identifies a specific group of people that you're to work with. He puts you in a specific place, and then He gives you a unique plan. See, no, nobody's an island. None of you are God's mercenary, the one Rambo that is out there in Christianity to fight the enemy. All of us are dependent upon one another. We're interlocking. We're, there's a thousand explanations, and we've taught on this in a myriad of ways. But as I began to reflect on the church, I, I was having a hard time studying this morning because I started thinking about the church and what God's doing in, in our lives and how He's revealing things to us. And it was funny because usually I go to the Word and I study the Word, and out of the Word I get a precept. This morning I had a precept that I took to the Word to develop through the Word. It's backwards from the way that I normally do it. Matthew had talked to me about Habakkuk the other day. I talked to uh, Pastor Sutherland about it as well. And so I read Habakkuk this morning, and I confess, it's, I don't know how long it's been since I read it. And I've got notes all over the place, and the last one is, is really profound, very deep. My note in the Bible, right? It says, wow, good book. <laughs> Why I felt the need to write that in God's Holy Scriptures as if it needed to be added as commentary, I don't know. But I did. But in Habakkuk, what you see is God identifying two specific people groups that he's going to work with in the book of Habakkuk. First off, he says, you Jews, um, there's going to be uh, uh, another nation that is going to rise up to chastise you. Because Habakkuk is complaining. He says, why do you tolerate all of this sin, Lord? This is the first chapter of Habakkuk. Why do you tolerate this? And uh, Habakkuk, God tells Habakkuk, hey, hey, buddy, don't worry. I'm going to rise up, raise up a nation, a ruthless people, a treacherous people. And they're going to come in and chastise uh, your nation for the sin that they're in. Here we've identified the people groups that are going to be involved. And he said, then he moves on to say, and I'm going to do this in Jerusalem. It's going to be ransacked. He identified the place that it was going to occur. Habakkuk was upset. You know, he said, come on, Lord, why would you use a treacherous nation to do this? And then God says, hey, I tell you what, I'm going to reveal to you my plan. And it's going to concern the times of the end. So I want you to write it down and make it plain. And there's one of our very first principles. And we'll come back to this in the end. God wants you to know the people you're to work with. He wants you to know the place that you're supposed to be in. And he wants to reveal his plan. He wants to make it plain. So if you look at Habakkuk 2.2, you'll see that scripture. Page 1043, middle of the page, says, uh, Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald or a messenger may run with it. For the revelation awaits appointed an appointed time. And then he goes on to speak about it. God has given us revelation that he wants us to make plain. In your family, there's revelation about a vision, a plan for your family. In your church there is, in your job there is, and it's for a purpose. It's because we're supposed to be making it plain to the people around us. It witnesses of God. If the very creation, the trees, the grass, the rocks, the moon, the stars, pours forth speech day and night about God, 
our lives are supposed to too. We are the tablets, the mezuzah. You know, I'm pointing up there to the sign that is not a mezuzah but has the same principle and the mezuzah over there. We are that thing which is supposed to make plain the revelation of God. And I just thought that was neat, the Habakkuk principle. In Habakkuk uh, 3.2, we're going to see one more thing that I'm going to get back into the message. Once you understand the people that are called, once you understand the places that God intends to work and His plan, it causes a certain reaction. And this is a song that our worship leaders in here sing. And it's Habakkuk 3.2. It says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. O Lord, renew them in our day and in our time. Make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. As Habakkuk began to understand the people that would be involved in this, the place it would happen and what the plan was, he stood in awe of the Lord's deeds. As we begin to gain revelation and insight into what God's doing in our lives, it causes a reaction. We stand in awe of the Lord. We stand in awe of His deeds, what He's doing, and then we agree with it. He says, in your wrath, remember mercy. That's the very thing that God had intended to do. We need to find out what people we're supposed to be involved with. We need to understand what places we're supposed to be affecting. And you need to know God's plan for your life. And when you do, then you can agree with it and you can stand in awe of the Lord's deeds. And so that will be our topic this morning. We're not going to, yeah, we're going to. Turn to Genesis 3, which all of you can quote by heart, so we're not going to read it, but it's a place to just kind of leave your Bible open while you listen to me ramble incessantly. In Genesis 3.15, Eve was given a promise. Everybody knows about this redemptive promise. What you may never have heard, and here's more peas for you this morning, just to stay on this theme of this letter. Eve was pregnant with promise. See, she was told she was going to produce something. She didn't see it in her lifetime. But nevertheless, she was pregnant with that promise. She was told that a seed would come. Now, what is ironic about this spiritual pregnancy, different than the natural pregnancy? When you're naturally pregnant, there's a uh, standard gestation period. And you go through normal processes. The baby's born, and then it's over. With a spiritual pregnancy, the gestation period is indefinite. Could be tomorrow, could be ten years from now, or, get this, it could be something that is just passed on to a later generation. And they become pregnant with the promise and passed on to another generation. The Jews, as a special people group for God, became the human channel for the Messiah. They became the conduit through humanity that God's power would flow through in the Messiah. Eve was pregnant with a promise that fell to a man. Wow. A man became pregnant with a promise. That's where our study will start today. It will be in Genesis 12 because Abraham was promised the very same seed that Eve was pregnant with. Now, that, that could be a whole other message in itself, and there's a bunch of preachers and teachers in here, so I hope it does become that. Steal it, take it, use it. As he becomes pregnant with this promise, God has to reveal to him something. He has to reveal the people he's supposed to become, the place he's supposed to live, and God's plan for his life. We see that in Eve, but that's a much bigger scope that, that we just we probably couldn't cover in an hour. We're going to see it in Abraham in real definable, easy-to-use terms. And then we're going to apply it to our lives 
and finally to the church. So in Genesis 12, and for those in the CD ministry, Genesis 12 is on page 12. That's nice, isn't it? You know, we could quote a thousand reasons you should be in the Thompson chain, but we won't do that today. (laughs) I'm actually teasing about the Thompson chain. All right, Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. He has no idea what land he's going to yet. He knows that he's one of the people God's going to work with because God's speaking to him. So he knows he's part of the plan. He knows he's one of the people. He's waiting for the land, and he's waiting for the plan. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will... And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. That's kind of a plan. It's an overview. It's what eventually happens. But there's not much in the way of details for for Abraham, is there? You know, this guy who's going to find out he can't have kids. He may already know he can't have kids. You know, it's not as if he's a young man at this point. No real details there. More just kind of a general sense of what God's going to do. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. He took all kind of people with him, and God didn't necessarily tell him to do that, did he? The people are not yet defined in this mission. He knows he's one. How does he know that? God spoke to him. And when God speaks to you, The only thing you can really be sure of is that he wants you to do what he said. But the first thing that we generally do is group all those that we love, that we trust around us, and try to include them in it. Not always wise. You see what happens with Lot, and that's a whole other teaching in itself. When God speaks to you, it's very important that you identify with the right people. And to do that, you kind of have to know what the plan is, too. Right? Because God's not going to equip you with things that you don't need for your plan. He's not going to leave you unequipped for things that you do need. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent. If from there he went on eastward, where was he? If from there he went to the hills east of Bethel, where was he when the Lord appeared to him? It was at Bethel, the house of God. All of this is beginning to speak to Abraham that this plan that God has yet to give him, that he doesn't yet understand, would involve him, an offspring, and a specific land that the Canaanites now held. In fact, the place where he was now standing would later become and be called the house of God. And I've shared with you all in about five services in a row now from the satellite imagery. If you take a picture of Israel like we have on that wall and look down between Jerusalem and Bethel, God's name appears in the hills, written there for all the world to see. Knowing that man would not be able to see that until we reached an age in the 60s when we could get into space. God's awesome. His revelation and his plan is progressive. You will see more of it as more time goes by. So in Genesis 12, we see the beginning of the identifying of the people group he's to work with. This is going to deal with his offspring. 
But Abraham's going to have more than one offspring. And God's not going to work with all of them in the same way. The plan that God has for Abraham's life is not equal among all of his offspring. In Genesis 17, you see him real clearly identify the place. It's Genesis 17, verse 8. We're going to leave Abraham in a minute because I know everybody in here is pretty familiar with Abraham. Uh, just start in verse 7, 17, 7. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant. And he goes on to explain this covenant. This is basically the unveiling to Abraham that he's a man that God's called, that his descendants would be people that would be involved with him as a part of this, and that the specific land where he was standing would be the places that this was to occur. The plan is detailed to Abraham in the covenants that are, are following. And you've all studied the Abrahamic covenant quite a bit. In the 19th chapter, he really outlines the plan. We're going to read just a few verses of that, and then we're going to move on. I'm sorry, not chapter 19, verse 19 of 17, of chapter 17. It says, Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarai will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful, and he will greatly increase in his numbers. He will be the father of twelve rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. Really what you see in those few chapters, and we'll move on to the rest of this message, is God picks Abraham. He begins to speak to him. He says, hey, I will show you a land. He goes to a land. God begins to show it to him. At the same time, he identifies his descendants that he will work with. And then the plan's revealed. The plan is, Abraham, that out of your descendants there's going to be a man named Isaac. This man named Isaac will be the one that I will do everything through. And from him is going to come 12 sons that will be a nation. Well, golly, Eric, that's great. And we study Israel. We know all of that. How does that have anything to do with us? In our lives, we should seek God about the people we work with. We should seek God about the place where we're working and his plan. Abraham's the father of the faithful. You see this pattern move on and on. And what's interesting is it didn't originate with him. Eve was pregnant with a promise about a descendant. That pregnancy transferred through the lineages all the way down until you see a man who gets that same promise and is pregnant with it until he sees a descendant come. He passed it to his children, the three patriarchs, right on down to the Messiah. The plan that God has for your life may not be complete in your life. It may transfer right on down to your children. And that's an important thing to understand. The Bible says that God chose Abraham in Genesis 18 because he would teach his children what is right. Each of us are working with people in our lives. But the first people that we work with are our families. 
because the plan that begins with us will likely finish with them. Does that make sense? I want you to have some notes and some thoughts on the people God's called you to work with. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 16. If it's important for you to know the people that God's called you to work with. All right, Lord, I I feel your calling. Now what do I do? How do I know the people that I'm to work with? How do I identify them? What should happen? Here's a pitfall to avoid. Just throw that book down there, sweetheart. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, on page 1285, We see this phrase from Paul. It's, and he's begin has begun talking about the Lord's plan for his life and what the Lord's revealed. And here's something he learned about it. It says, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Here's a pitfall to avoid in Christianity. As you feel God speaking to your heart that you're to move to Sugarland, that you're to move to Walker, that you're to be a part of uh, Lakewood, Healing Place, Bethany, wherever it is that God has called you to, and you're wondering, well, this is a big place, or this, I know where I'm supposed to be now, but how do I know about the, the people that I'm supposed to interact with and unite with? And generally, you know you're supposed to with all Christians, but that special inner group. What do you do? The first thing you need to avoid doing is labeling anybody according to the flesh. We have this habit, and this habit works like this. You identify a weakness in a person. And sometimes it's right off and it's so superficial that you don't think they're attractive. Or you don't like the way that they dress. Or you don't like their nationality. Or their accent. Or whatever it is. And your sinful nature wants to regard them according to a worldly point of view and relegate them to somebody that you can't work with right away, somebody that you're not called to be with. The reason I'm sharing this is because what I have found in life is the ones that you would not pick, the ones that you're not just right away, oh, yeah, dear God, let me work with them, are the ones that Jesus usually puts you together with. He said, well, Golly, what does that say about the people you're working with there? Do you not like them? No, no. Here's the truth. The truth is you naturally gravitate towards people that are just like you. But if you do that, they will have all the same weaknesses you have and all the same strengths you have, and it doesn't help any. When God begins to reveal the people you're working with, you should expect them to be weak in areas you're strong in. You should expect them to be strong in areas you're weak in. And as you begin to understand that and you can shed this worldly point of view in the way of regarding people, you can more quickly, more easily identify the people that God's called you to work with. In Luke 7, we see something. And I don't know how often y'all have thought about this, but have you ever... Junior high is a great place to think about this. Can you think of somebody in junior high that stands out? Get a name in your mind. That person that you're thinking about, whoever it is, spouse is excluded. I didn't want you to think deeply about this. Just the first name that comes to mind from your seventh grade year. 
I bet that name stands out because of a singular event and probably one that is at their expense, you know? Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Something that happened that made them memorable to you. The guy that dropped the football uh, for the touchdown run. The guy that got run over in the band. You know, what, whatever it was. We tend to mark somebody based on one or two interactions in our lives with them. And it prevents us from being able to work with the people that God's called us to work with. For instance... Matthew and I met as freshmen in high school. The way that we met was Matthew had repeated something that was ugly to a woman that I cared very much about and I'm now married to. I, being a very ugly person, walked up to Matthew to physically attack him. Is that a good start to a relationship? No. If we marked each other like that, if forever Matt became somebody who repeated ugly things and I became a physical abuser, If that's how the only way, if those one actions characterized us forever, do you think that we could work together? Of course not. Are those initial impressions always right? Just like the initial impressions are not always right, after a while people begin to rub you wrong when you are in a big group of people. You begin to gravitate towards people that rub you the right way, not realizing that the ones that are rubbing you wrong are causing you to grow. And what tends to happen is these little cliques start to form. And to strengthen your bond with people, when I'm with the halls, I say, you know, I'm glad we have all these things in common because the wake fields over there are different. And everybody knows that the wake fields are. Then I go over to the wake fields house and I do the same thing about the halls. And neither one of them ever consider that that's occurring. This is human nature. I'm not talking about anybody in particular. I'm talking about me. I mean all human beings. Look at this in Luke. I told you all to go to Luke 7. All of us are called to work with certain people. It's important you don't regard them according to a worldly point of view. In Luke 7, verse 18, we see something happen that I'm sure you're all familiar with, but I wonder if you ever thought about it in this way. Since John's disciples told him, this is page 1146, since John's disciples told him about all these things, calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said to John the Baptist, sent, I'm sorry, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. Then he goes on down to describe John as more than a prophet and someone to whom nobody who had ever been born from a woman was greater than John. Right? That's how we all think of John the Baptist, a forerunner of Jesus, somebody who no one born of a woman was greater than. Is that pretty fair to say? Well, then, why, when we turn to John 20, flip to John 20, a few books to the right, does this happen? John 20, verse 24, this is page 1205, says, Now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. 
But he said to them, Unless I see nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples came in the house, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. What's the difference between Thomas and John the Baptist? They both doubted. Why did Thomas go down in history as doubting Thomas? And John the Baptist goes down in history as one who, of all the men born of a woman, there's nobody greater than. Why did we regard Thomas in one way and John the Baptist in another? Did they both doubt? Yeah. They, they both totally were blown away about who Jesus may or may not be. Both of them had to be corrected by Jesus. Jesus said about John the Baptist to the disciples, go back and tell him what you see. He said to Thomas, touch me. No difference. He's offering proof of who he is. One of them goes down in history as somebody who is great. The other goes down in history as a doubter. Maybe it's because of the length of their ministries. Maybe John the Baptist just did a whole lot more. Well, no. John the Baptist was only there six months. He was only in active public ministry six months before he was beheaded. Maybe it was all the miracles he did. Didn't do any miracles. Thomas, on the other hand, was martyred for the faith like John the Baptist. Went on to a ripe old age. Was probably killed somewhere in India. Is recorded as doing vast miracles. And is the first person in all of the scripture to call Jesus both Lord and God. Something John the Baptist never did. So why regard one according to a worldly point of view and the other according to a godly point of view? Do you see how you could miss the Thomas in your life? You know, there are people that have made mistakes. It happens. I'm going to wrong you. I don't want to. I work against it, but it's going to happen. If you label me as that, Eric the Doubter, and throw me away, you may miss all of the beautiful things that happen for the rest of my life. You know, you're willing to do it with John the Baptist and give him the benefit of the doubt. You like that? But not Thomas. Why? We need to be very careful in our lives that we don't do that. I'll give you another one, but we're not going to turn there. When you think of a Pharisee, what do you think of? You think of somebody with a cold, stony heart. Somebody who is steeped in ritualism. Somebody who can't find Christ. Maybe even a Christ killer. Us Gentiles, you know. Those Jews, they killed Jesus. There's a Roman cross he died on, you know. But those Jews, those bad Jews, no good ones, right? How did we get the Bible if there were no good ones? When you think of a Pharisee, immediately you think of negative things. Joseph of Arimathea was a man on the Jewish ruling council. What is that? It's the Sanhedrin. To be in the Sanhedrin, you had to be a Pharisee or a Sadducee. If when you met Joseph of Arimathea on the street, you said, oh my God, this is a Pharisee, and chose the other route, because you had already labeled him in your mind. He's not somebody I can work with. He's not part of God's plan for my life, not part of the place I'm supposed to be working in, and he is sure not one of the people I'm supposed to work with. You might miss out on something beautiful. See, because he did have a stony heart. But he took that stony heart that he had, and he carved out a place for Jesus in it. In fact, that's so true that he had an actual tomb made of stone 
that he carved out a place for Jesus in. And he's the guy that went and bartered for Jesus' body and put him in a tomb that he later resurrected from. We throw away people that God desires to use. We don't allow them to participate in the places and the plans for our lives. We have to be careful never to do this. Not only do we have to be careful never to do this, on the other side of the coin, if you're the Joseph of Arimathea, if you're Thomas, you can't let people throw you away. They try. They'll push you off. When you're certain that you're supposed to work with people, you love them anyway. You love them so much that you work to overcome their weakness. They're judging you in the flesh. You push all of it aside. You be willing to be wronged and give Jesus a chance to open their eyes. And when you do that, then at the end of the day, you can be absolutely certain. No matter what, I know I'm working with these people. God will make it real to you in a way. You know how you know somebody really loves you? You want to know if somebody really loves you, then you need to be able to wrong them and see if they'll forgive you. If you want to prove to somebody that you love them, God needs to arrange in your lives an opportunity for them to do something really bad to you so that you can love them unconditionally and they can see that it's real. Because until it's tested, until there's the opportunity for you to get ticked off and go your separate way, your bonds of love are never really tested. You meet newlyweds and they haven't had their first big fight yet and you know they're still on shaky ground. You know, they need to have the argument that one is headed to mom's house and the other is glad she's going, but they resolve it before it happens that far. That's how marriages get stronger. That's how all relationships get stronger. So when you are thinking about the people God's called you to work with, don't regard them according to a worldly point of view. Don't expect it to be totally peaceful. It won't be. That's not the way it works. Bringing that into a church... Don't allow yourself to segregate for any reason. These are the people that God's called you to work with. Don't allow yourself to judge one another according to the flesh. Don't let me become uh, the house where there's always so many people it's chaos. Don't let Mandy become, oh, I don't know what we might say. I can't even use examples. Mandy's house is so perfect. Shorty. Judah said shorty. Don't let Mandy's house be the house where all the short people hang out. Do you understand what I'm saying about deriving these cliques? It's, have you been in much bigger churches where anytime one group of people was mentioned, one family, there was one trait associated with them? As if that was the only trait they had? I can't think of any to use at the moment that I can use. But that's wrong, and it will prevent God from working in your life. Now about the places. Turn with me to Acts. There are people that you're called to work with, just like Abraham was called to work with people, just like Gideon drafted a special army. You know, he started with 30,000 people. That's not the people that God called him to work with, though. So he sent all home who were scared. He sent all home who didn't lap up the water like a dog. I mean, come on. He wanted only those that brought the water from their hand to their mouth so that they could keep their eyes on what was going on around them and were spiritually sensitive, not those that just laid with their face in the water and drank. God will identify for you the people that you're supposed to work with if you give Him the opportunity. And Samuel, Samuel knows he's supposed to anoint a king, right? 
he goes. He says, well, it's going to be from Jesse's house. Got my spiritual antennas up. I see seven before me. It's got to be this one. God says no. It's got to be this one. God says no. It's got to be this one. God says no. Got any more? Well, yeah, there's one out there in the field, but it can't be him. God would never call you to do that. Those are the ones God calls you to do that with. You need to learn to look at people with the potential that God sees in them, not what you see in them. Now about the places. Acts 17, verse 26. Somebody read that out loud. He determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. I don't care who tells you differently. I can point to ten scriptures off the top of my head in the next three minutes that tell you that God determined where you're supposed to live. Not just where you're supposed to live, but a specific spot He calls there. You cannot just serve God anywhere you want to serve God. It is not just your choice. Well, I'll take out the almanac and I'll pick the city that is growing the fastest that will provide me the nicest lifestyle. There are people that you're supposed to work with. They live in certain places. And you have to live where they live because God has a plan for you. He's got a plan for that. So when the Bible says that He determined the exact places you would live, it's our job to find out what that is. And you know what? As bad as I may want Brad and Micah to live here, if that's not the exact place God has determined for them, I'm sinning against them and God to wish it, aren't I? See, there are exact times and places. Exact places. If there are exact places, then we need to find out where they are. And First Kings tells us something that would be good to know. There's fear in going to a land that you've not been to, isn't there? In fact, Abraham, who's called, knows he's a person who's called, then embarks on a journey to the place God will later show him, had to leave without even knowing where he was going, right? Mighty Elijah in 1 Kings 17. Elijah the Tishbite, Elijah the guy that could call down fire from heaven. Listen to what God tells him. Now Elijah, this is uh, page 396. Now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tish, that makes sense, huh, to be a Tishbite from Tish, in Gilead said to Abraham, As surely, I'm sorry, as the Lord, (laughs) I can't speak today, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kiriath Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered ravens to feed you there. Elijah depended upon God for his provision. He he depended upon God for everything that he needed. So what happens to Elijah if he does not go to the place that the Lord calls there? He finds himself out of the Lord's provision. In the absence of the Lord's provision, what is man left with? His own arm. And your own arm is a vain hope for salvation. You want to find frustrated people? Find people that are not only not working with the ones that God called them to work with, but they're not in the place that God called them to be. And you will find frustrated Christians because they don't understand the pattern. They've not fully submitted to the Lord. They want to do something that's good, 
They want to accomplish something, but they want to do it their own way. These are miserable people because their frustration is on every side. As much as they like the people around them, they're not the right people. They're not the ones that God called them to work with. As much as they like the place around them, it's comfortable, it's nice, it's not the place God called them to be. So they're left struggling and straining and working everything out with their own arm. There is a place called there for you in your life. And you know what? The place called there today may not be there tomorrow. See, Elijah was in one place. God said, go to another. There you will be fed by ravens. There there will be a brook. You know what the next thing that happened? The Lord dried up the brook. said, I want you to not be here, but to go there, somewhere else. They moved when God said move. We want to set up camp. We like, I like you guys. I really, really like you guys. So I would have a tendency to say, these are the only people I want to work with. It's too hard to get to know other people. It's too hard to work out all of our personality quirks. I'm going to stick with what I'm comfortable with. And I really like Sugarland. Why bother with moving anywhere else? Why bother with learning new surroundings? This is what I like. God always has the right to say, I want you not here, but there. And there's where my provision will be. If Israel did not follow that pillar of fire, at night or the cloud by day they didn't have God's provision and that's precisely what the desert was to teach them well every trial in our life is to teach us the exact same thing there's a place that God has called you to be there's a people he called you to work with in Joshua hang a left from Kings the first chapter of Joshua on page 237 and I don't I don't want to read it I probably only have about 15 minutes left and there's a bunch to get to But on the first page of the book of Joshua, if you have the chance to skim it at some point this week, and if you don't have the chance, you need to change your life so that you do have the chance. There's no reason we can't read the Word throughout the week except that we're lazy. In the book of Joshua, Joshua has been identified with a group of people he's supposed to work with. Can everybody agree on that? Would, would you say that's true? He knows he's supposed to work with one nation. He wasn't called to go work with Babylon. He wasn't called to work with Assyria. Certainly wasn't called to work with Egypt. He was called to work with the people of Israel. Now he's been taken to a place that he is supposed to work, right? And God's beginning to reveal some of the plan to him. And do you know what the most important thing he said to Joshua is? It's in verse 6. Be strong and create, courageous. Because you will lead these people to inherit the land sworn to their forefathers. Be strong. Be very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let the book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Do you get the feeling that perhaps God wanted Joshua to be both strong and courageous? <laughs> yeah, you, you, you are left with that subtle impression, aren't you? When you enter into the place that God's called you to be, working with the people, it's natural that you should be somewhat scared. It's natural that you should feel ill-equipped and that the task feel overwhelming. That's why it's called faith. 
Because God calls you to do something that you feel like David and it looks like Goliath. We're grasshoppers in our own eyes, God. You're not supposed to be looking through your eyes. You're supposed to be looking through His. And if He called you to a place, then He'll provide. And it may take ravens to do it. Something you think is unclean, kind of nasty. That's the way God does things, friends. It really is. He will find whatever way is most damaging to your pride. He will find whatever way seems to be least appealing to you and then provide for you amply in that way. Because He's Lord and you are little. He's Lord and you're little. And you need to know that. The only time you're ever big is in Him. He wanted Joshua to be strong and courageous and to meditate on His Word. Why meditate on His Word? Why does He say be strong, be courageous? Two times, then meditate on the Word, then go right back to heaven. I told you to be strong and courageous. Because in order to be strong and courageous, you have to meditate on His Word. If you want to work with the people God called you to work with, there's only one way to do it. You have to dwell in the Word. If you don't, division will come in and it will crush you. There is no chance that you will ever sustain a relationship with any other human being. Not your children, not your wife, certainly not your neighbors, not the people in church, not relatives, not anyone, if you cannot put into practice God's Word. Because relationships require you to be dead to self. They require you to live out God's Word. And if only one person in a relationship is living out God's Word, not much of a relationship, and eventually it dies. It requires you to. So if you want to be strong and courageous and go into the land that God's called you to with the people, you have to meditate on His Word day and night. Which leads us into the next thing. If you know the people you're supposed to work with, if you know the place you're supposed to be working Meditating on God's Word prepares you to work in that place and begins to reveal God's plan. Because I can know that I'm supposed to work with Matthew and Cassie, with Mandy, with David and Jennifer. I can know that with all of my heart. I can know that it's in Sugarland with all my heart. Be absolutely certain nobody in heaven, on earth, anywhere be able to convince me otherwise and still not have a slightest clue what I'm supposed to do. Have you never been there? Have you never got all of your best friends together on a Friday night and say, wow, it's so good to be here. What are we going to do? And everybody look around kind of stare at each other? The kingdom's no different. You can know who you're supposed to work with. You can be thrilled about it. You can be in one place all together knowing that that's where you're supposed to be and go, <laughs> now what will we do? God's Word will reveal His plan. Turn with me to Proverbs 25. If you turn to the middle of your Bible and you begin there, Proverbs is not far from it. And uh, from the middle you should be hanging a small right. And Proverbs 25 is on page 730. Proverbs 25 verse 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. God conceals His plans. Why does that seem so strange to us? Why? Why would it be strange that a great king would conceal his plans? Did you get a briefing? Did anybody in here get a briefing before we invaded Iraq? You know, did, did the president of this country send you a personal email to let you know when the troops would be moving, how they would be moving? Hmm. Well, I, I'm curious. How about D-Day? Do you think any of our parents or grandparents got a personal briefing 
from uh, the Allied forces on how that would happen, when it would happen? Now, probably not, huh? But to those who were responsible for carrying out specific tasks, were those plans revealed? They're concealed from everybody else, but revealed to the ones that have a need to know. Those are the kings in God's economy. It's to the glory of God to conceal the matter. It is the glory of kings to search it out. You are called to be princes with God. Very kings, not to quote queen, of the universe. You are kings. And it is your job to see God reveal what is concealed to everybody else. Now what's interesting about that is God reveals to one king his plan. And not necessarily does he tell another king that the previous king had that plan. In other words, what I'm saying is, God may have a plan for Wade that he revealed to Wade. It's none of Eric's business. It has nothing to do with Eric. If Wade chooses to reveal it to me, I may or may not react to that in a godly fashion. Because God didn't tell me. Now, if we've built a good relationship, you would hope that I would, because I'm meditating on the Word day and night. I know I'm supposed to be encouraging that my only authority from God is to build up and never to tear down. Because the Word says that. But often we stray from what the Word says. So don't be surprised, especially if they're not people you were called to work with. They're not people that are a part of that plan if they don't understand. There are people that God's identified in your life. There's a place that God has identified in your life. And there is a plan that He will reveal to you. In Daniel 2, we don't have to read this. In Daniel 2, the 27th verse, you find this phrase. You remember there's a king, and the king says, Hey, man, I have a dream, and I want you all to tell me what it means. And the astrologers, the magicians said, No problem, king. Tell us your dream. We'll tell you a bunch of BS. You know, you won't know the difference. We've been doing it to you for years, and we're on your payroll. <laughs> you know? He said, No, this time I think I want to do things a little differently, guys. Why don't you tell me what my dream was and the interpretation? Oh, no, king. There's nobody, there's nobody anywhere, not any astrologer, not any magician, not any diviner, nobody anywhere could do that. Except this little Jewish boy named Daniel, who was in the place that God called him to be, with the people that God told him to be. And he had a plan for his life. So he begins to seek God. He goes into the third heavens, third heaven, and he begins to seek God. And you can read his prayer, it's beautiful. It's in Daniel 2. And God speaks to him. Tells him not only the dream, but also the interpretation. So Daniel goes back, having meditated on God's Word, not arrogantly at all. He says, I'm no, no better than any other living man. Guys, the revealer of mysteries told me something. He's made it known to me. The revealer of mysteries. Those of us that are called to be kings know God as the revealer of mysteries. Not the concealer. We know him as the revealer. Those that are not kings, they know him as the one who conceals. And he intended it to be that way. Read the parables and see if that's not true. Read the words of Isaiah quoted in the New Testament books about the life of Jesus and tell me that's not true. He conceals things from those he wants to conceal them and he reveals them to those he's called kings. So Daniel knew God is the revealer of mysteries. And when you're working with the people God's called you to work with in the place God called you to be, one of the ways you know it is God's plan is revealed to you. It doesn't all come in a day. It doesn't all come in a moment. We're fixing to share some... E fixing, like that. We are going to share 
some events that have been memorial stones, milestones in our life, points at which God has revealed His mysteries to us, and He's not done yet. I see but in part now as looking through a dimly lit glass. Does that make sense to y'all? You're beginning to get there? Turn with me to Psalm 57. I have nine more minutes. Can y'all bear with me for nine more minutes? Psalm 57. In my mind, these are always 20-minute messages. I want y'all to know that. Yeah, I don't know how that happens. The other night we got together to teach about Islam, and I had a 22-minute video to show. 22 minutes. took two and a half hours. I don't know how that happened. I'm, I'm not sure, but I'm certain that somehow it is my wife's fault. She wasn't in here. She had nothing to do with it, but somehow or another it's got to be her fault. Y'all in Psalm 57? Psalm 57, verse 2. It says, I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. Whose purpose is it, after all? Whose plan is it? I wasn't the architect of the plan for my life. I didn't decide what the purpose was. I didn't conceal it. It was never mine. It's simply my job to find out who I'm supposed to be working with, where I'm supposed to be working, and then the revealer of mysteries shows me His purpose for my life. Psalm 138.8 says the very same thing. I bring that up pretty frequently because the temptation is while you're waiting for the revealer of mysteries to show you what's going on, you begin to feel this burden, this pressure, like you should be doing something. You have to accomplish God's will in your life. You can't accomplish what hadn't been revealed to you. And John the Baptist, the guy we all like so much, he said something that was beautiful. He said, a man can only receive that which he was given from heaven. I love that. It takes all the burden right off me. You can look at me and say, Eric, God, you don't know any more than we know about what's in the future? No, I can only receive what I was given from heaven. The revealer of mysteries hadn't given me that yet. You're a king, though. You seek him, find out. You know, it takes all the burden off. As much as I've described ways you can get sidetracked with the people that you work with and not regarding them, it really is a pleasure when you're with the people you know God called you to work with because there's a purpose for every friction. There's a purpose for every tension. As much as I've described a scenario with the place that God's called you, that you could be fearful and it'd be intimidating. It's a pleasure. And the reason it's a pleasure is because there's a purpose in it. You know there's a reason for you existing and living where you live and working where you work. As much as the plan of God could feel like a mystery to you and something that's concealed, it's a pleasure. Because as you seek it and it's revealed, it's beautiful gems. It's pearls that you dare not throw before swine. It's awesome. Turn with me to Zechariah 4. Six more minutes. Stay awake with me. Six more minutes. Are y'all getting the general gist of what what I'm saying? Probably not very complicated. It just seems that way to me. All right, Zechariah, the fourth chapter. If we know that God chooses the men that you're supposed to work with, men and women, if we know that God chooses the place that you're supposed to work with, and He reveals His plan to you about what is supposed to be done, if we know that that's the case, if we are encouraged to seek that out, if that's the pattern that we see in the Word, Everybody here goes visiting with 
was a blessing for, I mean, just a, a gift, but it relates to differently. Everybody here has to know what that is because you're a part of it. You are the people that we're supposed to work with today. Tomorrow, it could be somewhere else. That would break my heart. I would hate it, but it could be. And if it happens, I have to support it or else I've excommunicated myself, communicated myself from God's blessing. If we're called here and these are the people we're supposed to work with, if it's this place, then there is a plan. One of the things that God did for us was I was studying for a message called Chosen Task and Purpose. And that morning, I happened to be reading the book of Zechariah, totally off subject, and listened to what God spoke to us. This was something that confirmed to me the people that we were supposed to be working with, the place we were supposed to be in. Zechariah 4, verse 1. Let me tell you two real quickly. This is a time period in Israel's life where they are rebuilding a temple. Zerubbabel's temple, the foundation has been laid and they're fixing to build it and all the people of Israel are really concerned. They have two great fears. And I think some of us may be able to relate to these two great fears. The people were concerned that they may not be able to finish what they had started. That was fear number one. Fear number two was they had the glory of Solomon's temple to live up to. Solomon's temple was a wonder of the world, Israel's golden age. There was never another building like it, not anywhere on the planet. So the people were concerned, wow, God's called us to do this. If we do it, if Joshua was the high priest, if Nehemiah is a city governor, if Ezra works with us, if Zerubbabel builds this, can we finish it? And number two, is it going to be worthwhile? Those were their concerns, and here's what God spoke to them. Can you relate those concerns to anything else? We've begun a work here. Can we complete it? And if we do complete it, will it compare with the other things God's done in our lives? Will it be worthwhile? Are those not the inward fears that people have? They were mine. Okay. And God speaks to you in a way that only, a way that touches you specially. Then the angel who talked with me, Zechariah 4, verse 1, page 1054. Then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me. As a man is wakened from his sleep, he asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it, with seven channels to the lights. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word the Lord the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, O mighty mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstones to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hand of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hand will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? When men rejoice, when they see the plumb lined in the hand of Zerubbabel, these are the seven eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth. Then I asked the angel, What are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? Again I asked him, What are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, Do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, These are the two 
who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. You could read that a hundred times and not have a clue what it meant. Somebody, you could give that to somebody at Harvard, a, a great intellectual but with no spiritual understanding, and this sounds like gibberish. But when the revealer of mysteries wants to speak something to you, listen to what he spoke to me. Two great fears. Can I complete what I start? And if I do, will it live up to the expectations that I have for it? God responds by showing that His lampstand, His very presence is here. That morning, Jesus began to show me His lampstand was in our midst. Secondly, that it wouldn't be by my might, by my strength, that I would complete it. It was His Spirit's job to accomplish it. Thirdly, this was a word of prophecy that had been given us the week before that we didn't understand. He would crush every obstacle that stood before us. Do you see that? What are you, O mountain, to stand before Zerubbabel? The Lord was telling me that the mountains would be moved to accomplish what He wanted to because His lampstand was here and His word had called it. Thirdly, the work has already begun. He was telling me, Eric, look how far you've already come. You're here. You're in the place. I'm identifying the people. Now you just need the plan. Fourthly, or fifth, I don't know, I lost count, that he had anointed two for the task. There are two olive branches. The Lord didn't ask me to do this alone. He gave me an armor bearer, and I'm his armor bearer as well. He gave me somebody that would work beside me. Now, Matt didn't hear it, but y'all know what I said before we started about the Denton thing? They didn't get on the CD, and I'm glad, but he began showing me that years before I ever even read or understood the Scripture. God has a way of revealing His plan to you when you want to know it. Well, that showed me pretty well that I was working with the right people. The P. Rose had just shown up. Showed me that I was in the right place. They heard from God to move here just like I did. But I still needed His plan. We got a prophecy a few weeks ago. And I've known some of this in general, but I just can't tell you how this has touched me in a unique way, and I'm hoping it will encourage you as you seek God about these things. Here's the prophecy. It's on 62704. It says, Keep your eyes on me, little church, and not on the waves and storms around you. Keep your eyes on me, for the days are coming when I will make you like a great magnet that draws the precious metals from the earth, my choice building materials. The church will be built with the precious stones of my choice. Keep your eyes on me and not on the inventions of man. Trust me and not the work of your own arm, for you are mine and I will do this. Keep your eyes on me. Does that sound like a plan to you? That's as much as Abraham got in Genesis 12. Jesus is always faithful to reveal to His people who they're supposed to be working with. He is always faithful to show you the place called there where your provision will be. And He is always faithful to reveal His plan. But all of it takes work. And you can't do it without strength. You can't do it without courage. And you absolutely can't do it without meditating on His Word day and night. Now, there is in every person's life a man, a land, and a plan. It's our job to find out what that is. The reason I started with Israel is because they're the prototype. They are the nation God's working with. And it began with a promise to a man. It's expressed in that man's covenant 
with the Lamb. And it's all part of the redemptive promise that Eve was pregnant with. Every time a child is circumcised that is a Jew, it's a testament to that. Every time we don't circumcise our children, it's a testament to the fact that we believe it's being fulfilled in Jesus. That's pretty well what I have to say about that. Let's stand up. Let's pray.